Hello, Sopranos podcast fans. Thank you for joining us today. Before we get to the main episode, I did just want to mention real fast, I'm an actor and a storyteller. I have a lot of other pursuits outside of this podcast. One of them, I have a little crowdfunder going for right now. It's a project called The Information War. I wrote it and acted in it as a part of the 2018 New York City International Fringe Festival. It was a one-act play. It was very well received and had a successful run at the festival. The Sopranos podcast's own Paul Mancini, in fact, was the director of that version and will definitely be involved creatively on this next iteration as well. However, that was live theater. I'm looking to adapt it for the screen. But, as many of you other artists out there will know, adapting something for the screen takes quite a budget. We were hit pretty hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, and I could really use your contribution if you can spare it right now. Please check it out. I'm going to post the link down below the podcast in the description so you can get there. Or if you're feeling industrious and want to explore, go to Indiegogo.com and search for The Information War. It's a silly, dark satire about radio show host and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. It's pretty dark and pretty wild. One audience member actually described it as feeling like a 90-minute episode of South Park. Except now we're going to adapt it into a 10-episode web series. So please check that out. Contribute what you can. We have some great perks for contributors, ranging from cool merchandise to personalized thank yous and even a speaking role in the show, as well as producer and executive producer credits. There's some really cool stuff there. Check it out. Once again, that's Indiegogo.com, and you're going to search for The Information War, or just go down into the description of this episode and click it. Thank you so much for your support, and please enjoy this episode of The Sopranos Podcast. All right, here we are, folks. This is The Sopranos Podcast, Episode 9, Retreat. Why do you think you, Anthony Soprano, always has to set things right? This is a quote from Dr. Jennifer Melfi in Season 1, Episode 9, episode entitled, Boca. Boca was written by Jason Cahill, Robin Green, and Mitchell Burgess, and directed by Andy Walk. I think all of us secretly have been looking forward to this one for a long time. I know I have. Here we are, Boca. This is um, arguably the most pivotal episode in the season as far as the grand arc of the show. Essentially, secrets are out. Junior gives world-class head, and the mob world is abuzz, while Tony's secret is also beginning to leak. And we have a soccer coach who is sleeping with one of Meadows' classmates. That's put, that's put gently. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into it here. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And here we are, guys. Uh, you know how we do this. Let's start it off. Just gut reactions to Boca. What an episode. Boca is and has been one of my favorite episodes of the series long running. When I knew we were coming up on it in the schedule, I was a little reticent because I wondered if I could still justify such a deep love for the episode given how brilliant the episodes are that we've already covered. The reason I feel I can is because of the following. A couple points, then we can dive in. First thing I wrote down was sex and power. But I don't just want to say that the show is compelling because we're dealing with sex and power, because sex and its relationship to power is as old as the Greek comedies. How is that relationship dramatized? How is it done with the coarse humor that the innuendo in this episode, how fun and playful it is, makes it such an interesting outing. Another thing that I think sets this episode apart is actually something a bit different than other episodes. In other episodes of The Sopranos up to this point, what I would argue is that there's a danger throughout, and as Jordan mentioned, I think when we discussed perhaps episode four, the humor creates a sort of what you might call a light touch, and it becomes almost like a bit of a dark comedy. In this story, in this episode, I'd argue that the A and B storylines start off unabashedly playful, kind of goofy. Hmm. And the, the churning gears of the episode move in such a way that when the episode in the second half becomes remarkably dangerous, mm-hmm. we are bewildered as to how it's even happened. Third and last 
I think this episode takes a step in terms of the moral complexities that we're exploring on the show. Not that we've explored no moral complexity before, but we've very often been exploring how these characters are either immoral or amoral. In this episode, we're digging into how even their morality is distorted, dysfunctional. We're really taking them to task for their omerta code and their macho chauvinism. Just as a quick example, in the first scene where the coach is invited to the Bada Bing after the game, they offer her this they offer him the services of the girls. And Artie says, Oh boys, we guys, we said a beer. And the sense that these gangsters have crossed the line by the end of the episode will be laughable, <laughs> given what the coach has done. Silvio's admonition, oh, it's not about the money, it's about the girls, is almost immediately undermined <laughs> when he tells the coach it's on the house. Right. Um, and this will happen more and more throughout the episode. Last really quick note, I think another reason this episode stands out for me is because of a lot of the, the supporting characters, what we see of Junior, uh, we see a different side to him. You know, guys, some people still don't know the thrill he gives. <laughs> so we see that Dominic Chinese does a wonderful job. To see John Ventimiglia as Artie and Catherine Narducci as his wife, Charmaine, always a treat. They got some great scenes here. And yeah. I'd say other than the very last scene with Tony, the top shelf scene in this episode for me is Artie confronting Tony at the bottom. Oh, yeah, oh, we'll definitely get there. There's a lot to chew on there. Uh, Jordan, initial thoughts on Boko. This was one of the episodes I was most looking forward to analyzing with you two. Uh, you know, when I was looking at kind of the season offerings and, and what comes up in season one, there's a couple of um, names that are really big and bright in my mind. Pilot, College, Down Neck. Boca was one of those names as well. Uh, we're not done with episodes like that that have kind of had this lasting impression on me, but Boca might be uh, the most significant for me other than College in season one in terms of how long... It has affected me, and I still think about things that happen in this episode. What I also see the commonality throughout those episodes I just mentioned, Pilot College, Down Neck, and now Boca, is that these are the episodes where the pressure of the family and the pressure of the home family are kind of like grating against each other, maybe most profoundly, in ways where we see people out of place trying to do things that would be justified in one aspect of their life but can't quite be translated into another and this is present on all levels of the plot in this episode. We see that with not only how we're going to deal with Coach Hauser, but how Junior has to deal with the softer side of himself, kind of grating against the friction of the harder side of himself, and which is the which is the true version of Junior Soprano. Mm. Uh, really interesting episode for, for so many reasons. I'm I, looking forward to discussing it. Yeah. Yeah, for me, this is an episode, I mean, just pretty obviously about sexual boundaries and sexual rules and how those boundaries are crossed and betrayed in different ways, two completely different scenarios here. I also want to give a quick shout-out to Kevin O'Rourke, I, uh, I think is the actor's name who plays Coach Hauser. He does a great job here. This is one of those character actors you see all over television. He's one of those guys, I, I can't even, I know he's in Boardwalk Empire, but like, this is one of those guys you, you, you if you're, you know, I don't know if anybody channel surfs anymore, but <laughs> this is one of those guys you quote unquote channel surf. You're going to see him all over the place. And he does a, a very good job, very interesting performance. I was watching his performance more closely than I have uh, in previous watches. So I just want to give a shout out to him. And I thought that whew, this episode provides many hilarious moments and many very compelling moral conundrums. Oh, yeah. So let's dive right in. This, uh... This first scene, we have Livia and Junior at, at Johnny Boy's grave. Uh, very funny scene. I, I think some people might think this first scene is kind of a throwaway. This might be one of my favorite scenes in the episode. Oh, in great. an episode that is packed with good scenes. Yeah. Um, a lot of good symbolism here. AJ is out playing with the wild dogs, these cemetery dogs, as Livia uh, admonishes him. Mm -hmm. Uh I think Junior and Livia are the cemetery dogs. Uh, these are the two things that the two animals that appear harmless, but they will bite your fucking hand off, right? Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. Playing amongst the dead, uh, reveling in the gravestones, you know, showing their respects, but also they are these wild, feral things. I, mm. I think of of Junior and and Livia at, at the the graves uh, as being the the cemetery dogs. Also, Junior has some great lines here. You know, talking about Tony, I, I taught him how to body surf. I taught him how to ride the waves. Um, again, Junior almost supplanting Tony's father in having the memories of how Tony grew up, which really deepens the significance of their relationship and the conflict that they're now having, is that Junior kind of sees himself as his father in some ways. Look, he's out with Tony's mother at the grave of Tony's father, 
And he is completing the family picture. The only person missing in this scene is Tony, but the young AJ is there. There's a kind of an incomplete or broken family picture here, and Junior's kind of trying to pull back and, and see the whole thing. Um, you know, and, and AJ comes up and tells a joke. You know, he's a rascal like his father was, and it's about, you know, making the dead people jealous by breathing. And, of mm. course, Junior already knows that joke because that's probably a joke that he taught Tony, and Tony probably taught that joke to AJ. That's oh. the unspoken mm. cycle oh, in that beautiful. scene. I love that. Well, that adds a little bit of gravity to Junior's cute smirk when he hears the joke. Oh, for sure. I, listen, I, and it's, is it not a Junior Soprano joke? 100%. It is. Is it probably likely that he taught Tony that joke? Probably. And I would say Tony taught it to AJ. I think we're seeing, Junior seeing that coming back around to him. I really like that. I think the other aspect of the cemetery scene that I really liked is, in spite of this overgrown weed cemetery and the kind of dim outlook, Junior, as Jordan pointed out, is in this nostalgic framework of actually a father-son dynamic teaching him to ride the waves and of course it's not an accident that we cut right from there to tony similarly trying to tend to as we said in another episode this other part of his life gentler more normal and when it, okay it's not his son but as he says what do you want my son's my only son's a couch <laughs> potato yeah. and so he's watching his daughter's games it's that same dynamic and part of this episode I think, in essence, is about two gangsters looking for a retreat. Let's get away from it all. Sexual taboos break apart both retreats, and the gangster posture is easily reverted back to. Mm. And um, this is something I mentioned to you guys before we recorded, too, but this idea that we are now dealing back-to-back with two episodes that deal with the projection of power and the projection of what a gangster should be is very interesting. We got it big time with Chris in the last episode. We got it with Junior in this episode. And we, I mean, we always get that with Tony. That's what the whole thing is all about. But this is just very interesting here, this whole issue. We're going to get into it, but uh, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of some of the modern nomenclature, but this is like, this is like toxic masculinity, the Sopranos episode. It's, it's, oh, for sure. It's all over this. Silvio is really funny in the soccer scene. Just want to throw that out there. We see a different <laughs> side of Silvio. Silvio is uh, thus far and many and most often going to be kind of recognized as Tony's most level headed guy. But you throw him into certain situations <laughs> and he is, I mean, he's, yeah, Zebra, I'm talking to you, going out there with the beater, hundred yelling 100 bucks for a goal to his daughter. I mean, just ridiculous Silvio moments that. Uh, I will always be a guy on this podcast to point out the hilarious, over-the-top Silvio moments. And this is one of the first in the whole series. Talking about this being an episode about toxic masculinity and how women are objectified and abused and, and put in unfortunate situations. Wow, crazy transitions in this episode. We get the transition from the girls' soccer game directly to the topless girls at the Bada Bing. Oh, yeah. And I, I guess what we're hinting at in this script is that... Uh, there is this objectification going on and that there, you know, we we have all the sympathy for, of course, poor Allie, who is being abused in this episode. But also there is maybe a kind of abuse or a transactional abuse that is going on between Tony and the guys that run clubs like this, where women not much older than Allie and Meadow and Dina mm. are dancing on those stages with, with no clothes it's, and are treated very poorly. It's no accident, Jordan, that the particular girl they offer to coach is named Brandy. They're, they're little more than commodities like the alcohol they're serving. Mm. Yeah, nice. I love that. Neither neither do I think it's an accident that the coach's first name is Don or that his dog's name is Petey. And he gets like taken out <laughs> by Chris because the coach's Peter is also where it's not supposed to be. Ooh. Very good. Very nice, Paul. <laughs> I think a good find. I think that's more yeah. than just fishing. I think that's quite no, good. No, no. Yeah. Very good. So yeah, yeah. The coach. We learn a lot of information. The coach's daughter is also on the team. Arch uh, Artie, uh, who, as we discussed in the sort of the preamble of this episode, Artie goes on quite a journey in this episode. Um, and we get uh, this is probably our biggest Buko episode to date. A lot of side characters that I love. It's a big junior. It's a big Buko episode. Again, there's a lot <laughs> of like you know non-main characters that uh, are featured in this episode that are just tremendous. And and Buko uh, is really funny at this bar scene. We get Charmaine calling up. And uh, their guys are kind of mocking him. For, <laughs> we, we get our first taste of like this macho mockery that's going on, and the, right. we get a, a big a reminder of the culture we're in. Yeah. And Artie, there's a conversation that we're going to talk about later on, where 
the question of Artie's balls specifically comes into play. But Artie's got some big coconut balls, man, and there's several examples of it in this episode. Sure. Uh, and even there's bigger examples of it, but even just being able to tell Tony, like, no thanks, you know, different strokes. Right. It's a big thing. It's not. A, it's uh, it tells him more than once in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big deal, and we get a little bit of, of, of that here. I noticed that uh, Junior Soprano is operating not out of the diner any longer. He is mm-hmm. now operating out of his lawyer's office, uh, which is pretty embarrassing for him. Okay. Uh, and there's a great line in that uh, scene where uh, it is uttered, the wheels of justice turn slowly, meaning they don't have to hurry up and get out of town amidst all these federal indictments, but rather that, you know, since justice is slow, since it's a slow process, that they can kind of just uh, kind of just hang around for that. You know, uh, this will this will bring us back around to the coach and dealing with the coach because these are these are guys or men that, that can't wait around for justice to turn slowly. They need immediate re- repercussions, reprisals, things like that. Uh, this is why the negotiation between the home life and the mob life doesn't quite translate, doesn't quite work out. Yeah. And we're already getting a little tease in this lawyer's office scene about uh, the crossover and the way that people are talking and sharing information that perhaps is best left unsaid. There's a little moment that I've never noticed before, but stood out to me on this most recent because I'm focusing on there's a lot of moments in this episode where it's like, what are you talking about? How did you know that? You always want to talk about everything Junior says. Nobody tells me anything. Livia says there's a lot of talk about talking. And then Melvoin lets this little line slip, Melvoin being Junior's lawyer, first time we see this character, definitely not the last. Melvoin uh, mentions Bobby, and Junior responds something to the effect of, what the fuck do you know about it? Like, he's already, like, kind of like, how the hell did you know that? And then Melvoin just, like, works at the Joint Fitters Union. He just knows. And Junior's kind of looking at him like, how the hell does he know all about this? Well, anyway, you know, whatever, not important. But little, little hint there that we're getting into a territory where people are talking too much. Again... The episode is titled Boca, not just because Boca Raton is the destination for Junior and Bobby, but Boca is the, also the Italian word for mouth. Which has multiple uses in this Multiple episode. uses in this episode. It's all over the place. Another, th- another. you guys were mentioning Artie, who also, I can only reiterate, has a compelling journey here. Emotional, funny at times, totally believable. That when he hears about what the coach has done, he even reverts to a gangster status, mm. that he wants to mete out justice. But again, even the humor, it plays out in this interesting way. He is so overjoyed, even more in uncomplicated fashion than Tony, to be watching his daughter play. And he says at one point, I think Tony playfully says, oh, you really love this coach, don't you? He says, absolutely. If he coaches Kara through a senior year, I'll blow the guy at midfield. Oh, you will. It's just a joke. By the end of the episode, Tony gets in Artie's face. He says, your boyfriend is finished. Even the gags become weaponized. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very good. Very, Very good. You know, this This is sort of the one thing in society that most people can agree on. There, What is lower than a child predator, right? And even in this gangster culture, there's like, there's depths that they don't stoop to. That are There are boundaries that are totally unacceptable. And what happens with the coach is obviously one of them. Everybody in, pri- in prison, the two people that are segregated from the rest of the population, cops and child predators. Those are, you know, chomos, they're called in, in, in prison lingo. And so, yeah, Artie and I think a lot of regular people all over the place that Artie kind of represents in the Sopranos universe hear stories like this and think, ooh, give me five minutes alone with that guy. It, it turn, you know, That kind of thing right. turns all of us into this, this is an episode where I think we're all rooting for Tony Soprano to do something horrible to this man. Right. You know? we're, which, with, we're with Artie. Which is... What's so fucking amazing about it is because we're in this situation where it's not just all talk. Me and a bunch of suburbanites can sit down and talk about all the horrible people in the world. And God, give me five minutes alone with this asshole. But these are people that can actually do something about it. And are they? Right. This is Tony who can get out ahead of the wheels of justice. I mean, we don't have to put this guy through the system where he'll just slip the noose yet again. Tony can deal with this directly and immediately. And it it gives you sudden power. Imagine how helpless these fathers feel, you know, in this moment. We never get to meet, you know, Allie's parent or parents or what exactly her situation is. But, um, you know, imagine the the frustration and the rage and the hurt and, and the anguish that goes along with that. When, you know, they're saying, you know, imagine it was Meadow. You know, I mean, that is the position that they're all in. Yeah. 
Oh, and uh, Silvio, my daughter should have to know this shit. My, she should have to think about that filth. Uh, Carmela asking Meadow, he didn't touch you, did he? And Artie remembers the time that the coach drove Kiare home from school. It's a total betrayal, and you have to imagine that that's happening with everybody on the soccer team that ends up knowing about it at some point. Yep. just so happens that one of these dads is Tony fucking Soprano, and bad luck for the coach. But we're going to get there. I want to talk a little bit about leading up to this revelation. Uh, so we have this interesting, these Godfather-style tactics and an allusion to the Godfather when the coach, uh, who they all love early on, gets this offer at a Rhode Island, at Rhode Island University and ends up leaving. They double the salary. His daughter's going to get a free ride. And then this great scene that tells us a lot about Coach Hauser, too. I was very taken by the gesture because it's not something even... I, I'm a pretty bold guy in some ways, but I wouldn't put my hand on Silvio's chest and say, this is my field, you know, right in the middle of that confrontation. But Artie and Silvio go to confront him. And Coach Hauser, he says later on, Don Hauser will not be intimidated. And while it's a little bit of an empty, <laughs> the words are somewhat empty because we know what he's up against. But, you know, he's 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 also a guy that, like, has has some has a set of stones on him. And nobody gets away clean. Uh, Silvio, near the end of the episode, says that self-righteous prick stuck his dick and my daughter's soccer teammate they don't like that he's full of himself mm. and that he presents himself as part of a more legit lifestyle because he's kind of a pig like them yeah. and indeed as you pointed out part of an even lower bottom feeding rung of yeah. the scum of the earth this reminds me of you know instances on the show where like you know aj's teacher's car was stolen so that you know so then they they stole another car and painted it to look that way you know basically or or when tony steals melfi's car and has the starter fix it's just you know it's like gangster solutions for uh, real world problems but we we kind of like the gangster solutions in many cases in many cases these feel more just than us then, as Tony says, this guy goes to therapy and he becomes the victim, you know? Big criticism from Tony on the whole criminal justice system. Uh, the uh, second conversation with Artie, um, where, you know, what, he'll go to jail for two years, move up to Saskatchewan, and guess what? He's teaching girls soccer. Which brings me to a point. Do we think that the Rhode Island offer with the doubled salary and the tuition for the daughter was real? Uh, evidently, he's been moving around a lot. He gets new offers for jobs a lot. Is he moving around because he's doing this to kids all over? Is he Very a serial uh, abuser? Is he going around to girls of high school age and having sex with them? And then uh, when he is caught or he's compromised or the girl gets attached like Allie did and becomes suicidal and wants him to leave his wife, does he say, okay, family, we're moving to Rhode Island? You know? Ooh, I didn't even... I mean, that you can absolutely make that case. That would certainly make sense with That's what, essentially what Tony lays out as a possibility. Right. right? I, th I think, I think very on. viable. And I think, unfortunately, uh, I think that probably does happen. I mean, I don't know if it's happening in this episode. I mean, in the world, I think that happens. Oh, it happens all the... You know, I'm not picking on Catholicism, but we see this all the time where a priest gets accused of something, and rather than resolve it or fire him or get the cops involved, they just move him to another school. Sure. I mean, that happens. Sure. And this is a Catholic school. I mean, I don't know if that... I'm not I'm not trying to imply that that's, you know... <laughs> no, no, I understand. Endemic, but it's it does an happen. It's an institutional issue, it is. Yeah, sure. yeah. If I may, because now we've covered a lot about the coach, I want to pull back a bit because... The reveal about the coach is huge, it's powerful, but if I could look at it structurally for a minute, mm -hmm. that reveal only happens in the last 15 minutes of the episode, maybe 20. The majority of this episode has the coach as a hotshot uh, coach of these young women who leads them to victory. See, kind of an asshole, but as Tony points out, there's the Parcells thing. You don't have to love them. You love them when you start to win. And a lot of it is actually showing what the terms of gangster generosity are, which is you do things that we like. Not only do we love you, but whatever you need is on the house. Mm. You start to move in an autonomous way. Then again, the gangster posture easily comes back. And then in the last section, I think what's interesting is that though Tony becomes pretty cavalier, and says to Artie, I'm savoring the moment, which I think is a lie. <laughs> In spite of all that, Tony brings the issue to therapy. Why? Why would he ever do that unless he is feeling ambivalent at some level? Does he need to go and convince Melfi that he needs to do this? No. He needs to talk about it. 
Yeah, well, we get an accusation from Charmaine in this episode against her husband, Artie, that um, any reprisal against the coach in the form of some kind of violence, whether he's going to be killed or his balls are going to be cut off or whatever, is actually more serving to Artie and to Tony and to Silvio and the other fathers and is actually serving the girls in any way, that that is justice that only heals them and makes them feel better. Um, I think Tony is struggling with those same thoughts both before and after uh, Artie comes to visit him. He is thinking, is this what justice is? This is a huge question. This is a big turning point episode for Tony because suddenly justice uh, can be meted out beyond what a gun can do or what his fists can do in a bigger picture way for him. He has to now feel good about the justice too. And he's very cynical about the justice system. I mean, they, they dissect this issue in very... Uh, in several scenes, one of the scenes being with Melfi about they talk about how the judicial system uh, is not always all it's cracked up to be. And Tony, of all people, is going to be critical of government. Oh, sure. Government justice. As an Italian-American and a gangster. Yeah, of course. I think one of the big takeaways from this episode for me is actually that therapy is affecting Tony in dynamic and possibly new ways. We've talked at length about how he adapts and utilizes the language of therapy to serve his own needs, usually gangster needs. Here, there's a couple of instances. One is when his mother actually moves away from the dinner table and he lets her go. Mm -hmm. I don't think that would happen without Mm -hmm. him in therapy. And at the end of the episode, if indeed Melfi has, along with Artie, really pushed him toward this choice, and the last line of the episode is, call the shrink, tell her the town's going to give her a fucking bonus, then we see how profound an impact Melfi has had on his life. Yeah. Well, we said, we've said many times in this podcast that from what little we see, Tony looms large in Melfi's life. And I think we're starting to see, not just, I mean, obviously he mentioned he was in love with her several weeks ago, but I think Melfi is looming very large for Tony as well in some very surprising ways. That's so well said. And I think if you have a really good therapist and therapy is really working for you, that your therapist's words are probably with you Mm. as you move through your life and making your decisions and giving you strength. Tony mm-hmm. exhibits great strength in this episode by the end. He does. He does. And and, and uh, he shows tremendous restraint given what we know about him. Silvio, we're led to believe, was outside the coach's house. Like, he was parked. Oh, yep. Ready he, to do it. He was ready. I mean, for all we know, he had, a, he had a, a fucking torture kit in the seat next to him. Like, we have no idea what was just about to happen. But <laughs> Jordan referenced this. Can we assume that after school special means castration? Uh, uh, maybe. Uh, oh, Jeannie Cusimano. Oh, sorry. Wrong episode. Sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, Charmaine Bucco brings this up. Um, right. uh, she's the one that actually says, what are they going to do, cut off his balls? Maybe the after school special is that. Uh, that could be a thing, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happens to Coach Hauser. Maybe he never shows up to work one day. Maybe he's literally castrated and goes to Rhode Island. And you know, who the hell knows? But it's certainly not something uh, I would want to happen to me whatever the hell it would be so it's it's not a pleasant fate that's for sure and i would i'll tell you what i would take my chances with the american justice system over tony (laughs) soprano too we we also um i know we don't do spoilers but we get no closure as to what happened to coach hauser beyond this yeah this is it so we never actually find out the american justice system worked I think we're kind of led to believe that it's a 50 50. Hmm. Maybe this guy's maybe this guy does some hard time and, and really pays for his crimes. Maybe he, as Tony says, gets off basically scot free and goes to therapy and becomes a victim himself. The odds say that, you know, he probably didn't serve much time in prison, just given his socioeconomic status and he's probably a first time offender and, you know, who knows? Maybe that, but that's the, the ambiguity is part of the beauty of it because we don't know. Maybe, like you were talking about, maybe 30 other girls across the country came out and are like, yeah, this guy's a total creep. Right, but they probably didn't. Right. Well, that's, again, yeah. like I said, the more likely scenario is he got a relative, what most Americans would consider a low ball sentence. Uh, if he had a good lawyer, he probably, maybe he even avoided sex offender registration because Allie was young, but like underage young, but not young, young. So who knows? And then I'm sure he moved up to Saskatchewan. Sure, well, yeah, he definitely Yikes. didn't stay in the North Jersey area. It's an, it's <laughs> it's a great point because what we'll see more and more is that The Sopranos is not the kind of show where you come back and find out more about the coach. It is the kind of show where 
Tony, particularly in the first half, I think was trying to garden tend to this normal part of his life, specifically this relationship with his daughter. He loved that she was playing soccer. Even as he was awkward, it was fun to watch how he calls the star girl Ali Alphonse mm. and masculine makes her masculine in that framework. And that's part of, that's I think a part of his life that he wants to emphasize. That's what he wants to show to his daughter. And at the end of the episode, inadvertently, he shows to his daughter how much he struggles with mm. the complexity of his life. Yeah. And Meadow is looking down. And That's such a beautiful that. moment. Also, hey, props to Meadow in this episode for safeguarding her friend and ultimately doing the right thing and saying what was wrong, which uh, that takes balls. She's the goalie. Oh, yeah. She's the big uh, wall. She's the goalie. Exactly, Paul. I was, mm. I was just going to say that. She is the one that is is defending her friend and... and uh, ultimately, you know, it's because Meadow breaks down and has this real moment with her parents that this girl gets some help and that this man, this horrible man, is is removed from society, at yeah. least for the time being. Props to all the actors, but that scene, uh, James Gandolfini in that scene, he comes in pissed off and then gets walloped by this, and he reacts like how most men of his generation probably would react. It's an initial, like, that can't be right. It's a dismissal. You misunderstood something. Maybe she was trying to look sophisticated. Sure. He basically says all the things that men say to try to justify how this situation could be other than what it is. Exactly. Looking for any reason that this isn't what it is. But um, Tony, uh, thankfully, unlike many men in that situation, perhaps, comes, like, re- like Carmela sh- sh- shapes it for him. And, he's, and you just see that moment in his face, like, Son of a bitch. He says, I'm losing my fucking mind here. Like, he gets angry again, and, and that moment's like, yeah, no, she's right. There's no fucking reason there should be any sure. confusion about this. And there's a lot of emotional labor on the part of the women. Well, in this episode in general, but just in this plot line. First, we see emotional labor on Allie's part. She's not walking around telling everybody what happened. This is mm-hmm. something that she was holding within her until she is breaking down and can't anymore, and she is uh, acting out with these suicidal expressions, uh, you know, or, or even attempting suicide. Um, that's emotional labor. Uh, it's emotional labor for Meadow to be basically, to quote Meadow, living at Allie's house or, or having Allie over to try to take care of her. Uh, it is a transference of emotional labor, not to Tony when he finds out, but then to Carmela. Carmela asks for private time with Meadow to speak with her for, further. Tony gets sent out of the room. This is uh, the women of the show uh, having these discussions that only women have. It's the secrets they keep amongst themselves. How many women are out there that if they told the whole story, the real story would ruin all the men around them, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, these are delicate matters. Carmela understands why it has to be a conversation between ultimately just the two of them. Oh, that's so well said, Jordan. I really like that. I think that to piggyback off of that, as well as what you talked about, Chris, earlier, almost this being kind of a toxic masculinity-themed episode, the men, perhaps because of that toxicity, are blind to a lot, and I think there is something to the women being the goalkeepers, doing this emotional labor. Mm. I definitely think that early on, in the, pretty early on, before we know very much about the coach, Carmela asks, Allie, did the coach pressure you, Allie? And, no, 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 no. And Tony is flippant yeah. in his response. He would never have asked that. And by the way, no, never. And by the way, even his flippant response points to something. He says the following. How's he going to put pressure on her? He doesn't have the cojones to stick around and finish what he started. First of all, stick around with the girls and finish what he started is a chilling image, given what we know, what we find out about this coach. Oof. Secondly, cojones means balls. So again, we're dealing with these sexual taboos. A lot of taboos. balls, a lot of ball talk, balls, yep. you know, <laughs> pussies, a lot, a lot of genital talk in this yeah. episode. Uh, Interesting way to transition a little bit here. Uh, these stories intersect, and we're going to talk about that in a way uh, in, a, in a few minutes. But let's let's dip a little bit into what's going on with Junior. So we get back uh, after a scene at Melvoin, and he's going to meet Bobby. This is the first we see of this character. And they're basically skimming money out of the Joint Fitters Union to take a research and development trip down to Boca Raton for their romantic getaways. These people have known each other for a long time. I think she says when they're in the hotel. 16 years. 16 years have been coming here together. Is there a moment before this that we ever see Junior this happy? Nope. This is the ha- I mean, just no period. pure bliss. He's, he's, um, and in multiple scenes too, just that scene with them in bed together before she brings up the sensitive topic. We'll get to that in a sec. But, and then them dancing together, like they freeze frame the shot on Junior dipping her and he is just smiling. This is really sweet in a way. <laughs> we find out something about Junior here that 
is funny. I mean, there's there's no way to not laugh at the storyline, but it's it's uh it's sweet. He's uh he Junior is a uh, Bushman of the Kalahari. He's whistling <laughs> through the wheat field. Um, let's talk a little bit about this and and its significance and this great scene they have in the bedroom at the uh, I think it's the Waldorf there. I even thought during this episode, and I owe a debt to Jordan on this because more than once Jordan has mentioned the importance of costuming as part of the personality and mm-hmm. identity of these characters. Yeah. And I even thought some of Junior's shirts were sort of uncharacteristically, like, unpretentious mm. and fun. Like, he, he wears this, like, very light, off, like, eggshell white shirt yep. to dinner. And he's and he's still, he's still beaming yeah. from the trip. Oh, it was wonderful. I don't go down enough. And, mm, and so that's forth. That's not what I heard. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's a very dynamic storyline where we see this different side of Junior, as Bobby would put it. The thrill he gives is still a line that slays me. And, again, I'm struck by the uncomplicated love that this woman has for him. I, I, I can't resist some of these jokes. The, the, they're skimming from the Joint Fitters Union. Joint yeah. Fitters for the Uninitiated basically lay pipe. <laughs> so there's sex jokes. Everywhere. Yeah, there's they, another, there's the writers, funny, I mean, uh, a kind of a Shakespearean level, really. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, Shakespeare, I mean, we've one of the greatest playwrights of all time is, is body as all get out. Yeah. Uh, Jason Cahill, Robin Green, and Mitchell Burgess push this, the innuendos and the jokes to their fucking limit in this episode. And it works. It works so well because it's, it's like, I mean, what's better than intellectually guided sex humor? I mean, that's great. Few things, few things. <laughs> I think that. And as, as as there's so many funny bits, one of them that I love in the scene in the bedroom, uh, in this nice hotel room, they're talking about cunnilingus, and Bobby says, what is so terrible about pleasing a woman? I love that line. And he's, I think that's one, one of the points when he says, you always have to talk about everything. Mm. And she's pressing him on why. And he says, what's the big deal about oral sex? And Junior says, it's complicated. And she says, yeah. But why? And she's referring to the she's referring to how pleasing a woman can be complicated. It's so funny. <laughs> the way that that scene ends is probably a great pointer for us bringing it back to these sexual taboos as well as male insecurity and specifically juniors. He says at the end of that scene, "What are you gonna do? I don't make the rules. Well, who's the fucking boss around here? Right? Who decided that you can't do X, Y, Z?" Hmm. No one actively made that decision, but they all kind of know that that's the way it is. Tony says, oh, God, if this ever gets out, like as if Junior himself was diddling children. And he's it's not. He's not. He's performing a completely normal, consensual act for many adults. Sure. I remember watching this episode with my parents. I was quite young at the time, but they have always been very open with me. It's one of the things I appreciated most about my relationship with my parents. And I said, what's the big deal about, you know, Junior in the oral sex situation, I didn't understand. And even though it's basically explained in the episode that they equate it with being a finook, mm. right? Because if you'll go down there and suck on, you know, pussy, that you might go down and suck on something else. They were trying to communicate to me. My parents were trying to say that, like, yeah, some men, one, don't like to do it. And two, uh, sometimes it's considered sort of an emasculating act for a man because I don't remember my parents' exact words, but they were trying to say, like, that could be considered like being, like, subservient to the woman you're with. It could rob you of your power. They were actually very eloquent with the way they put it, and I, wow. I had remembered that about that episode. Coming back to it now... Um, That's incredibly frank parental conversation. You're very lucky to... It, it, it was. I mean, I, they were... Look, they were uncomfortable. But sure. also, my parents knew that I was mature for my age and could handle that kind of thing. And it was yeah. not like I was going to go tell all my friends that my parents had an oral sex conversation with me. <laughs> um, but I, all these years later, I still remember that. And more importantly, I look at this episode now and I think, you know, wow, what a, what a terrible lifestyle. There's an internet meme or something like that. Maybe you've seen it, uh, you guys or, or listeners. Um, you know, it's... Um, of a guy, and he's got, like, his his hands over his face in sort of what could be construed as sort of a feminine way. And the meme is like a, it may, I think it's like a Twitter screenshot, and it says, um, uh, if a guy ever holds his hands over face like this, you, you, know, you know he's gay. Imagine being so insecure in your sexuality that you can't touch your own fucking face, you know? Uh, and I, I was looking at Junior's situation here, and I was like, you know, being good at cunnilingus is something you should be proud of. You should feel awesome that your girlfriend goes around talking about what a great lover you are. This should not be equated to being less than in your own community. That is incredibly toxic. That is, uh, you know, 
almost just as toxic as some of the other stuff we were talking about in terms of the toxic masculinity that is in this episode is not being able to, to feel good about pleasuring a woman because you're subservient to her in that moment. Uh, you know, it's it's part of our, our sexual contract that we're going to be giving to each other. And Junior's doing a great job. So fucking what? Yeah. Yeah, it's rough. A lot of people, you know, it's hard to dis- say how much of I think a lot of this is, you know, their particular generation and culture. I, I know that some people I've went, went through the series with, when they first hear that, they have the same reaction. Like, well, what's the big deal? But to, to these guys, it is a big deal. It's one of these stupid things that maybe just gets slowly better over time. But... Um, Even Tony barely does it. Carmela says, what, once a year? Yeah. You know. I can resist the urge to gossip. <laughs> Is that presumably your birthday? I, I would imagine it's I, either a birthday or an anniversary. Good inference, yeah. yeah. Well, and it put, something that you said, Chris, it could be it could shift generation, generationally, excuse me, and certainly, like, my parents' generation, when it comes to discussing anything sexual, there's a modesty. But Tony's modesty, what happens in this bedroom stays here, Carmela knows is a cover for the hypocrisy mm. of all this. Like, yeah. yeah, they all do it. It's actually the sin or the the taboo being broken is that one does it with regularity, one is good at it, one yeah. has folded it into their regular sexual life. Again, as a, like, it's, it's a foreign language to me. But um, it's, but again, it's so playfully done and it's such a weird element to add to danger in this episode, but it starts to have this domino effect of impulse after impulse after impulse that brings us to Junior considering killing Tony. Yeah, at the end. Oh, this splits their 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 cold kind of feud and their secrets to each other. At the top of the episode <clears throat> in that graveyard scene, Junior says quietly, "I hate it as much as you do." But it's a pill that we believe Junior may quietly be able to swallow. What tips him is when things get personal. And again, we're going to talk about insulting masculinity here. When they're playing the golf game, what sets Tony apart after bu- after playfully busting Mikey's balls in a very funny way. Junior says, Junior snaps him. We let the man tee off. You yap worse than six barbers. If you'd have shut up in there during that game, whatever... Um, you know, you wouldn't have missed that fucking fly ball. I couldn't against could, Mountain Lake. Uh, against yeah. Mountain Lake, I couldn't couldn't face my friends after that. And we know from a couple other moments already in the series that anytime Junior goes after Tony's athletic prowess, that's a trigger for Tony. And we see just based on the way that shot lingers on him as Junior goes up to tee off that that really stung Tony. And so, what does Tony do? He barbs right back. Uh, you know, masculine posturing, who knows what. And then Junior steps up. It's a great scene for reasons that go beyond Silvio's amazing golf hat. It's a great... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Mikey Palmisi, you know, looking like a, a jack-off. Um, but <laughs> it's, uh, man, that scene. And it, it, that silly little golf repartee launches what could be the catalyst for intense life-and-death consequence. That's a great uh, place to set that scene as well, because golf is such like a pinnacle of, <laughs> of masculinity. Of course, there are female golfers, and there, there should be more. But for now, that is like the, the definition of the boys' club, is four guys out golfing and then the clubhouse afterwards. So mm-hmm. yeah, of course, this is like the, the toxic masculinity battlegrounds between Tony and, and Junior. Mm-hmm. There's another thing that The Sopranos does very well, and some other shows... Uh, particularly Mad Men comes to mind that do it very well. Impulsivity drives behavior and it changes plot. At the beginning of this sequence when they're golfing Mikey says to Junior something that Junior knows not to be true. He knows Mikey is on the wrong track when Mm. Mikey insists that Tony is going to this medical center twice a week disappearing near it. He has to be talking to the feds. Junior lets it go. Mikey is on a need to know basis. Don't need to tell him about anything. What you perfectly laid out the different pressure points yeah. that Tony and Junior hit each other, hit on each other, bring Junior to the clubhouse at the end. And he says to Mikey, he's seeing a psychiatrist. Yeah. How about that? And that first scene between Junior and Mikey is another piece of evidence in, in my uh, favor that Junior might have been able to live with the secret, much in the same way that a lot of these characters live with secrets. And Junior might have been willing to swallow the bitter pill of Tony seeing a therapist had it not escalated. But then, you know, he, he says in, in, a, in a different scene to a different character, that's my reputation you're playing with. And he means it. And 
unfortunately, once that cat's out of the bag, it's it's game on. You know, he wants to play games. I taught him how to play baseball, and these guys are going in for a uh, a brutal baseball game. It's, at least that's what it looks like. Sure. Boca is also our best episode to see the two juniors, that is mm. Corrado and Junior, and in many ways this is sort of the death of Corrado Soprano. Um, we, in the pre-show, spoke about this kind of being Junior's last chance at happiness. Mm. Uh, we saw what a wonderful time he had in Boca Raton. We now know that... Um, Unfortunately, Bobby couldn't keep her mouth shut, and she was mouthing off to, at the very least, the woman that does her nails, but probably other people as well, about how good he is at giving head, and has, yeah, taken away some part of his perceived dignity or, or his masculinity. Uh, so now he comes to her to tell her that, you know, it's it's called off between them, and in so doing, he, he ruins his own happiness. So his masculinity has robbed him of his happiness in this way. Mm, mm. Absolutely. I love uh, what you said before we recorded too, Jordan, about how we we there's a lot of little clues we don't linger on it long because this is not a world where you're allowed to live with the painful truth for very long before having to posture but there's a lot of clues in this scene that just point to how devastating the, a moment this is for junior sure we know we know that junior is obsessed with people being on time mm -hmm. okay he considers it an insult whenever anyone would be late yeah uh so now he is late for dinner with this woman he's been in a relationship with 16 years she admonishes him but, you know, and says, you're never late. You would always call if you were going to be late if something came up. Uh, she was hungry. She ate some of the dinner already. That includes, of course, a beautiful lemon meringue pie. Uh, and he comes in and he is so angry. But why is he late? We always have to think in The Sopranos, what is the scene that was not shown? Yes. Why is he late? He wasn't late because he was golfing. He's late because it took him probably hours in the car of heartache of trying to figure out what is the right thing to do. He makes the wrong choice. He goes in, he calls things off with her in a scene I have never forgotten ever in my life. He pies her in the face. A thing that is typically funny. A comedy device. Right, that is used for tragedy in this moment. And I've thought about this poor woman, Roberta, Bobby, crying under the skin of this lemon meringue pie. I love you, Corrado, uh, for my whole life since I've seen that moment. It is immeasurably sad. Mm. Uh, and he comes away from that changed, oh, affected. You see He's it. in the parking lot and you see Great the acting. deep deep regret on his face and so painful to watch yeah it's really hard it breaks my heart and a classic um, shot that, that i want to talk sopranos about sopranos will often use they call it the high stupid shot they use it on tony too high up oh fuck i'm just a i'm just an animal out here in the in the wilderness and he walks away pie in the face is also i'm sorry that's another sexual bit um yeah. as his stupid fucking blabbermouth cunt it's all over the place you can't get away from it on that scene there's a big thematic element here i think that the whole episode deals with which is essentially that, particularly in this world, gentleness can be read as weakness. Mm -hmm. Artie simply being considerate enough to go and help his wife with housework <laughs> it, like brings him in for a whole bunch of joking. And Tony and Junior, as I say, I think both revert to a gangster posture when they're triggered, as you say. But a couple of interesting things happen. One is that Tony Junior, excuse me, is so enraged at the end. When I first watched it, I thought he was going to hit the woman. Oh, yeah. And she pleads with him, don't hit me. He relents. But his compensation is the brutality of demeaning and humiliating her. Tony relents in the the actual gangster action, what would have been torturing and killing the coach, and after relenting, presumably has to compensate by washing down pills with a bunch of booze. Oh, and giving credit to Andy Wolk, uh speaking exactly to what you're saying that overhead shot of tony at the very end the last shot of the episode mirrors junior's overhead shot when both of these men kind of relent to their weakness for a moment hmm. ah, uh, beautiful stuff. and that that relenting refers to our, our title for today's episode uh we titled this episode retreat uh i wanted to honor boca's title which is one of the best titles in the sopranos yes. this has this wonderful double or triple entendre uh with a similar title for us so of course, I was thinking retreat in the form of Boca, as in the location, as in a vacation, but I was also thinking retreat in terms of a retreat from the gangster lifestyle. Mm. We've often asked on this show or in our own conversations, you know, what's the end game for these guys? At one point, do you have enough money and enough reputation, enough prestige that you just get out of the game? Junior is in the last stage of his life. He has hit winter. Um, you know, he's, he's an older guy. He has money. He has the girl. He's the boss. What is he waiting for? What more is there for him? Apparently being boss and being a good boss is more important to him than retreating to Boca Raton with the woman he loves. But it's on his mind. They talk about buying a house. 
She says, no, this is our place. We've always come here. Every one of our 16 years has been happy. Unambiguously, he agrees. Um, this woman adores him, dotes on him, feeds him a red pepper in such a way that I hope someone feeds me a red pepper <laughs> someday. <laughs> someday. And, um, you know, he gives it all up. He retreats from that life instead and, and resolves to remain a gangster. Likewise, Tony has to come up with a, a new solution for a problem. He, instead of hammering this coach, just, you know, killing him, he retreats from that situation. He takes Artie Bucco's gentler advice. Mm. So this is an episode about, um, you know, kind of reinventing how situations are are resolved you know um yeah junior doesn't hit her but it's it's worse in a way yeah tony doesn't kill the guy but it is also worse in a way in a different way yeah so good i mean that's that's what makes this show so compelling that's that's good drama what we're describing that's uh what what takes it to that that next level and the reason we are honoring the show in such a way couple last quick little things I want to mention. We can keep going on, on this episode, I'm sure, for hours, but let's just um, let's mention a few other things. First of all, big props to the writers for many reasons in this episode, but uh, these season one dinner scenes, man, God, they're so <laughs> funny. And look, we're all writers at this table here. Um, these multiple person scenes are hard. I find for me, the more characters in any given scene, the harder it is to write. And this is just I mean, it's beautiful work. It's funny. It's dark. It's, uh, I mean, just everything going on. Lots of little laugh lines. The, obviously, the innuendos, but, like, Tony ribbing AJ, like, you think you really think that was a piranha? Come on. <laughs> uh, just these, uh, these dinner scenes in season one are just fucking fantastic. And Livia, you know encouraging Meadow to get up and go on, huh? go ahead, honey. <laughs> I think, it, and the, this particular dinner scene being so funny, so well choreographed is also, I would argue, is a centerpiece at which the epi- at which point the episode turns. Yes. At which point both stories turn pretty quickly, fairly serious. Yeah. Meadow saying, I quit the team. Wait, that seems outsized. And the first shot across the bow, Carmela's teasing of Junior will change the whole dynamic. Mm. So, and I want to come back around to Artie, this last scene with him and Tony, where Artie confronts him, and Artie, you know, Charmaine tells him, Artie, you do have balls. That's why you're not like him. And Artie takes that to heart. And he is... <sighs> Artie is the only character that could do this. Artie is the only character who can come into Tony Soprano's room at the back of the Bing and tell him, Tony, this is wrong. You're wrong. Please, stop. Don't do this. Great scene. Great scene work between those actors and how Artie doesn't want to back down, but he, he you know, he, he's up against an immovable force. And while he seems to lose in the moment because Tony throws him out, he does he does win because between Artie and Melfi, Tony doesn't he doesn't he doesn't hurt nobody, as he says in the last mm. that last moment. Yeah. Artie's scenes in this episode with everybody, particularly Charmaine and leading up to the last scene with Tony, as I've said, are all top shelf. We're tracking something with Artie where he's friends with Tony. Tony wants to move into a business framework with him. As he says, put some money out on the street. Tony, much to Artie's delight, tells the Joker to take his hat off in the restaurant, which also extends to sexual domination. I'm so powerful I can flirt with your girlfriend right in front of you. Yeah. And I yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a morality play for Artie. And Ventimiglia takes a really big step with the character mm. in this episode. And I do think there's something to how, as you say, he loses in the moment, but the residual effects are there. One of the, It's a chilling moment to me still for Tony to calmly, it seems, take it in and then say to Artie the following, let me ask you a question. Who the fuck do you think you are yeah. coming in here talking to me like this? Yeah. And I, I was wondering when I was watching it initially... Uh, I, I just asked myself the question. I, I, I knew because I've seen this episode dozens of times now, but I was asking myself, watching that scene in the restaurant where he makes the guy take his hat off, I said, why is this scene in here? doesn't have any direct plot relevance. We learn nothing new about Tony. But it's there for Artie. This is a demonstration of Tony's power and, com- and, and, and capability put on display for Artie. He gets the guy to take his hat off. He gets the... He, then he sends him wine. Um... He does part of it without talking. Right. 
This episode is about talking too much. Absolutely. Yeah, just not saying a word. And, you know, mentions that the guys behind Artie look like cops. Check their plates. They're just seeing Tony in his element with this power. So Artie is well aware of what this guy can wield. And he turns Art Tony down. Tony makes several overtures to him of like, hey, let me put you back in business. And Artie, hmm, he's close. Artie is close to saying, yes, I feel like, but... Uh, you know, as grating and annoying, I hate to say that word, but as grating and loud as Charmaine can be, Artie needs Charmaine. I think Artie would have been in over his head with Tony ages ago, if well, not for Charmaine. That's a functional marriage yeah. that they have. I know that she's a little unpleasant in this episode, but she's right every time. Uh-huh. Uh, t- uh, Artie says, last thoughts on Artie Bucco, Artie says something in the restaurant that I think is... Uh, resonating. It resonates with the show, with the sub-theme in the show, that, you know, uh, values today, the standards are, are crumbling. Mm. Uh, and Tony gives us an example of how he can protect those standards and values, right? I will take the hat, I, I will make that guy take off his hat, you know? If there's something in our world that is crooked, I will set it right. Uh, and he is always trying to do this in, in the, you know, examples that we've already mentioned. And Melfi tells him, why do you, why are you the one who always feels like you have to set things right? Yeah, exactly, to, to bring it back around. So Artie feels kind of helpless in his world, but he knows Tony is a guy that can get things done. But without Charmaine, I think Artie probably would have already paid the price. I, I think he would have sold his soul up the river. That's why Charmaine's so important. That's Artie's conscience. You know, she appeals to his better nature. She humanizes him in a way that Carmela never does for Tony. Um, Charmaine is ultimately maybe a stronger woman than Carmela. Maybe that's a, a longer conversation for another time. But whereas we see a guy who is kind of like whipped or controlled by his wife, I see two partners that really function on a good level. Oh, yes. And it's because of Charmaine that the right thing gets done at the end of this episode. Yes, Artie is brave, but Charmaine has done the right thing by telling him to be brave or that he is brave. Well, or acknowledging him as a man and lifting him up and holding him up. That's a good wife. And what a beautiful irony that in a show about the worst natures of bad men, that it is ultimately the women who set things right in this episode. Sure. Through They do th- the emotional labor. They do the emotional labor, exactly what you were saying earlier, through these means of social subterfuge and 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 um, navigating the world set forth by the men in their life, they are able to ultimately bring this all to a resolution that is uh, pointing a unique way forward, for better or worse. Absolutely. Final thoughts? On this episode, one final thought. I think we talked about this a bit in the pre-recording this is a favorite of mine. I've watched this episode several times. It's the first time that I noted that at the Catholic high school that Meadow goes to, her name is the name of her team is the Falcons. Mm. Uh, the first episode started with the image of ducks. Tony yep. was dreaming about them, and the metaphor was the kids leaving the nest. Uh, now Falcons are, I think, from the sub same subspecies as ducks. They learn to fly very young and take off like ducks. Unlike ducks, they are predators. So it could point to Coach Hauser's secret. And this episode does come around full circle, I'd say, to Meadow growing up and seeing this part of her dad. Um, the, the question of her growing up way too fast is intimated with her knowing this stuff about Allie having a relationship with this coach. And Tony is going to continue to struggle with that. So that element is there. It's rich as anything else, and it points us toward the long arc of the show. So in this episode, with specific brilliant storylines, there's also the long game being played for characters like Meadow and her relationship with Tony. Well said, Paul. I would also point to Meadow for a final thought. Um, You know, Tony comes home drunk at the end of the episode. He's dancing with Carmella. She says, you smell like... Lord Calvert. <laughs> Lord Calvert. Um, it's kind of a silly scene. Uh, of course, he has mixed alcohol with his uh, medication. He's having some amusing side effects. Um, he's fallen around. He lays down on his couch so hard that the couch moves about two feet back, and then he falls down off of it. And Meadow is watching all of this. Meadow is watching this kind of from the, the second floor sort of balcony inside their house. Just the sort of Meadow is always watching in the previous episode. She was watching them as they hid the guns and the money and the jewels. She is really getting this glimpse at her parents that is new for her. And I'm, I wonder what that expression is on her face. Uh, Chris already mentioned, you know, Tony says, I didn't, uh, I didn't hurt nobody. 
you know, what does what does Meadow think about how this was resolved? You know, Meadow says earlier in the episode, what have I done? Or what what did I do? Meaning I, I told the wrong people. And she doesn't just mean her parents. She means because of who her father is and what, uh, you know, how this will affect other people. Because I think Meadow has considered my dad might kill someone, you know. She now finds out that he didn't. I didn't hurt nobody. She has seen that, you know, the coach has been arrested at this point, um, just as everybody else saw at the bottom Bing. Um, I'm just wondering what Meadow's expression is about as she looks down at her parents and this could be considered a sweet, strange little scene. You know, I, I always kind of look to see what Meadow's reaction is, you know, in many ways because she exists within the family, but also without it, that she's kind of able to look outside of the box of The Sopranos. I'm always looking at her expression to kind of read what her thoughts are on the current situation and, and how she's feeling. It's not a look of happiness. Mm. It's more a look of, uh, you know, kind of a... a, a being perplexed, uh, being confused. It, it's that unreadability that makes the expression interesting. You know, we're not quite sure what it is. Well, speaking of that, we're not quite sure where this is all going, but we are not far from the end. We got four more episodes left in season one. We're racing toward the end. This episode, to me, represents the true beginning of the end, and a lot of great TV shows uh, are structured this way, where you hit up an episode in the series that turns things full tilt towards the finale, and uh, we are no doubt heading in a very interesting and, and, and crazy direction for the remainder of these episodes. I can't wait to get into it with you guys. This has been wonderful so far. Um, and uh, coming up next, I guess, is a hit is a hit. Episode 10. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hughes. And uh, we'll be seeing you next time. Stay, stay, uh, stay happy, friends. And uh, come, this is, uh, yeah, we're just leaving. I'm going to leave now. Goodbye. Anybody else want to mouth off? If you like The Sopranos Podcast, please follow us on social media at The Sopranos Podcast on Facebook, Sopranos Podcast on Twitter, and The Sopranos Podcast on Instagram. To email us, hit us up at thesopranospodcast at gmail.com. Please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. If you don't want to leave a five-star review, don't leave any review. Thank you for listening to The Sopranos Podcast.